Good morning. It is Tuesday, the 2nd of June. I'm Tom Tilley. This is The Briefing. And in just a moment, we're going to take you to Washington, D.C., where you'll meet an African-American reverend who's been part of the protest there. If you put a dog in a cage and you poke it with a sharp stick, and if he happens to ever get out of that cage... He's going to bite you. That interview in just a moment. Right now, I'm joined by Annika Smethurst for the big stories of the day. Washington, D.C. has become one of the new epicentres of the chaos in America, with fires lit outside the White House, and President Trump was forced into an underground bunker as thousands of protesters clashed with the National Guard over the death of George Floyd. In L.A., a police SUV has been filmed driving into protesters, knocking two down, while in Minneapolis, a tanker truck drove into a crowd of over 5,000 people gathered on a bridge. Incredibly, it doesn't look like anyone was hurt except for the driver who was pulled out of the truck and bashed. An audio has come out overnight of the president urging governors who are like premiers or chief ministers to dominate protesters. He was singling out New York, which is yet to bring in the National Guard. New York, you've got to have to toughen up and we'll send you National Guard if you want. You have the largest police force in the country, 40,000 people, I understand. But what's going on in New York is terrible. Donald Trump there. And meanwhile, the officer charged with killing George Floyd was meant to front court today. That's now been pushed back to next Monday, US time, Tuesday, our time. And back home, the protests have now started here in Australia with hundreds of people gathering in Perth overnight in honour of George Floyd. Yeah, wearing masks and standing a metre and a half apart, protesters held signs like Black Lives Matter and I Can't Breathe, which is what George Floyd told the officers right before he died. Yeah, many were holding Aboriginal flags and were critical of Australia's track record. 432 Indigenous Australians have died in police custody in the last 30 years and no officers have been convicted for any of those deaths. A 30-year-old man thought to be Australia's youngest coronavirus victim has tested negative to the virus. Yeah, he initially tested positive after his death last week, but it's now been revealed that his second test came back negative. He had some pre-existing health complications, so they're not exactly sure what killed him yet. The case has baffled Queensland authorities, who sent in a specialist COVID team to figure out how he got it, since the town, which has fewer than 5,000 residents, has no recorded cases. Yeah, that one's been a bit of a mystery from the start. Um, Initially, there were concerns that a a nurse who'd travelled hundreds of kilometres to apparently see a sunset and ended up in that town had been the cause of the virus, but now it appears he doesn't have it. Yeah, central Queensland there, there'd been no cases. I think the closest one was Rockhampton, so I guess that's a little bit closer to solving that mystery. Yeah, and it was quite concerning as well that a case would happen in such a mysterious way. So in a way, it's a relief that he doesn't have it. And you'll be able to rent an Uber in Australia and drive it yourself um, as part of a new world first trial from the rideshare company beginning here. Yeah, as part of the new service, an Uber picks you up and takes you to your rental car, which you'll then be able to drive around. Half of Aussie Uber users will get access to the Uber rent in Brisbane today and Melbourne, Sydney, Perth and Adelaide and Gold Coast on Monday. That's, a, I guess, a, a very clever idea given people are pretty reticent to jump in strangers' cars willy-nilly at the moment. All right, that's the news headlines for today. Uh, We're going to go deeper in a moment on the protests across America and now the rest of the world. We'll speak to Reverend Dr. Julianne Robinson, who's been in Washington, D.C. for the protests. It's time to talk to an African-American who understands what this moment is all about, the pain that's fueled this outpouring of anger and rage on the streets of America for the last six nights. 
Reverend Dr. Julianne Robinson is based in Washington, D.C., and that city's become a real focal point. As you heard earlier, there's been clashes between police and protesters right in front of the White House, which has had to turn its lights off. It's reported Donald Trump has even gone into a safety bunker. Julianne, thank you so much for joining us here on The Briefing. What have you experienced over the last few nights? Well, Washington is a unique area in the United States in that we have a significant population of very well-educated and conscious African-American people. The mixture of people is very interesting. We have people who have been, how do we say, pushed around, but are able to analyze the current crisis in the context of history. And so we look at the um, market conditions, we look at the global economy and the way opportunities have been uh, suppressed for black people. And so there's a great deal of disappointment, there's a great deal of rage um, and frustration. And so people are expressing it in a variety of ways. Yeah, we've seen St. John's Church, the, the Church of Presidents, um, on fire. We've seen um, clashes with police out the front of the White House. The, the lights go off at the White House. Uh, the president reportedly going into the bunker for protection there. Um, do you expect the intensity of those protests to continue in Washington, D.C.? Well, I just read the New York Times report saying that protests have broken out in 140 cities across the United States. And then there are protests apparently in South Africa, London, and other developed countries. And so this is bigger than an American crisis. This is a global crisis. And quite frankly, I believe that humanity is being called on right now to transform itself from groups of people who are dealing in rage, grief, frustration. But then also, um, we can have a world without racism. (laughs) It would be a nice world to, to live in if we didn't have that kind of domination, greed, and violence in in our lives. And so it looks really bad right now, and it doesn't feel very good, but with the help of God, because I, uh, I am an ordained minister as well as a lawyer, so with the help of God, we can take ourselves to a new level of consciousness, and that's what I'm praying for. Yeah, where do you see it going from here? Because... Um, From where we're watching from a distance, um, the protests seem to be getting more and more intense. Um, In the last 24 hours, we've seen police cars driving into protesters. We saw that truck drive into a crowd of people. We've also seen looting of of shops at a time where uh, many businesses have been smashed by a pandemic. Do you see that intensity to uh, continuing or do you see it abating? Where do you see it going from this point? To be honest with you, The intensity of the protests don't really match the level of rage that really exists across the country. There are so many black people who have been killed by the police, many that we don't know about. There was one case, uh, Corinne Gaines, where police broke in and shot her dead while she was holding her baby. There's a case of Corinne Gaines. There's a case of Trayvon Martin. This is genocide. 
Let's call it what it is. And so the atrocity and its redemption exist in the same space. And what we're looking for is a kind of justice that surpasses lip service. We're looking for a kind of justice that reformulates the way we interact with each other in the court system, in uh, criminal justice. Things have to change. And so I don't like looting, violence, theft. I think it's horrible. At the same time, our voices have not been heard regarding the atrocities committed against defenseless people. And so we're looking for a response that alleviates the concern that we will continue to suffer as we've been suffering in the past. You're talking about very deep institutional change. How does that happen off the back of protests like this? And do you think the the violence and the looting is a necessary part of making a statement big enough to, to push that kind of deep change? I think that's a good question. I think Mahatma Gandhi had the right idea when he talked about Satyagraha, which was the power of truth and peaceful, nonviolent resistance and other peaceful forms of civil disobedience are legitimate means of creating change. But it's very, very important right now to give a name to the anguish that our community has suffered. And it's not just in the United States. The apartheid regime, when it was dismantled or changed in South Africa, didn't necessarily result in whole-scale upliftment in the economic position of black South Africans. There are places all over the world where a kind of economic exploitation results in obscene levels of poverty. I was in Benin, West Africa in January of 2019, and I was really devastated to see how poor people really are. And I had been in uh, Paris the year before and saw how rich they really are. There's a corresponding effect when resources and currency valuation and currency supply is controlled in Africa, is controlled by a foreign country, a former colonial country. Maybe the underlying motivations of colonial countries and, and occupying forces and dominant groups. Maybe the values can change a little bit. And I, I hate it that this is the way to get people's attention, but maybe this is the way. Do you condemn the violence and the looting or does part of you understand or even think there's a justification for that kind of action given the anguish the outrage and the injustice that so many African-Americans feel? Well, let me be very, very clear with you. African-Americans following the uh, Emancipation Proclamation performed very, very well in the American economy in spite of Jim Crow, in spite of segregation, in spite of terrible violence that, you know, even now still goes unnamed. We want to give credence to the idea that the KKK, 
the American Nazi Party, and the 20 to 30 other white supremacist organizations in the United States have committed acts of violence that are so obscene that their corresponding effect is what we see right now. If you put a dog in a cage and you poke it with a sharp stick and you keep poking it year after year after year, you've got a pretty mean dog. And if he happens to ever get out of that cage, he's going to bite you. So I don't apologize. I'm no apologist for what we're experiencing right now because it doesn't appear in a vacuum. People should have expected this to have happened a very long time ago. Many black people have unarmed people have been killed by the police. And we're not addressing that fact very well. And so this is the result. Well, we're watching it very closely from here in Australia and, and hoping that it will bring about some kind of positive change and not further division in a country that is already um, struggling with polarization uh, and, and hurt all around the country. Julianne Robertson, thank you so much for joining us on The Briefing here in Australia. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. That was Reverend Dr. Julianne Robertson speaking to me from Washington, D.C., um, Annika Smethurst was listening in. She's calling there, Annika, for for deep fundamental change, a, a, a rebalancing of power in our societies. I wonder how this this anger on the streets actually translates to to deeper change, and whether it really will. What What do you think, as someone who's been a close observer of political systems? Look, I guess that's the that's the aim of protests, isn't it? To get noticed and to get change. And look, we have seen examples of that um, in Hong Kong. Um, they ha- might not have exactly what they want, but there has been worldwide attention. Um, foreign governments have come out and put pressure on them. So I guess in a similar vein, that's the sort of thing I guess these protesters are hoping for, that this global movement will actually force leaders to do something. But I guess when you look at the cultural side of it, it's much more difficult to change. You know, generational uh, bias and ingrained is, is ingrained in our society. And I think that's much harder to change. Yeah. And she talked about entrenched racism and disparity in, in a number of countries. She, she talked about the lives of people in West Africa compared to the lives of people in Paris, for example. Uh, you can't help but reflect on the post-colonial reality we face here in Australia, where Indigenous people are vastly overrepresented in our justice system and we still have seen hundreds of deaths in custody of Indigenous people since we first took notice of that issue. How do you think this is going to ripple through Australia? Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a good result, but it it has sort of, I guess, highlighted some of our own problems here. I saw a lot of people that um, perhaps wouldn't be speaking about this issue where it might not uh, be in the mainstream media. Um, in recent days, there's been focus on, I guess, Australia's own experience here. So it could be, I guess, a byproduct of that, that we start reflecting on ourselves. And I guess that can only be a good thing. Yeah, greater awareness, um, greater consciousness. Hopefully that leads to some kind of deeper change. We'll keep following this issue, keep watching what happens in America and the impact that it has here at home as well. Thank you, Annika, and thank you so much for listening to The Briefing today. We'll catch you on tomorrow's podcast. A Podcast One production.